Harold Roper lived in North Carolina and at an early age developed an interest in the mining of gems and minerals when he would go out and accompany his father on digging expeditions, his father liked to go out and try to find Native American relics. And while his father's main interest was the relics, uh, Roper became interested in the gems and the minerals that they would sometimes find on these expeditions. So in June of 1989, Roper and another rock hunter friend set out in their Dodge four-wheel pickup truck and they were carrying their mining implements deep into the North Carolina mountains. They stopped at a familiar spot that they had been working at for almost a year. And they had discovered several rubies and sapphires, though not all of them really of gem quality. So they started that morning digging at a certain spot. And when Roper had dug about two feet under the ground, he suddenly saw the surface of a really large blue stone. And so he reached in and pulled out this enormous deep blue stone. Since his childhood, he had always dreamed of finding some kind of great treasure in the ground. And he finally had come to that place where maybe he realized that his childhood dream had come true. So, all told, the, fa- the stone that he actually discovered, which was later called the Lone Star Sapphire, was the world's largest blue sapphire. Let me give you a perspective of how enormous this stone was. The second largest sapphire had a carat size of 563. The Lone Star had a carat size of 9,719 carats. And it was estimated to be worth millions of dollars. He entrusted the sale of the stone to a Texas gem broker named Daniel Banks, who said, quote, It's a spectacular find, like a fairy tale that's come true. Everyone always wants to find a treasure. Mr. Roper has found a treasure. We all love stories, don't we, of finding a treasure. They captivate our attention. You look at the popularity of movies like Indiana Jones or National Treasure, right? Uh, It fascinates us to think that someone can go make a discovery and instantly their lives are enormously better. Today as we conclude our series on the parables of Jesus, We're going to look at two parables with the same theme. An individual finding a great treasure. And that treasure is a symbol for the supreme treasure of all, the kingdom of God. As we've seen in our series on these parables of Jesus, um, Jesus tells these parables not just to tell great memorable stories, but he tells them so that we can have a better understanding about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is Jesus' unique ministry of bringing redemption to people who need to find reconciliation with God and 
to bringing his restoration and redeeming work over this entire world. And so these parables explain various aspects about it. And since we've been seeing this and that aspect about the kingdom, I thought it'd be good to bring our series to a close here this morning and talking about this parable, which shows the supreme worth of the kingdom of God. And because it is so supremely valuable, it should bring us great joy, right? Let me try that one again. It should bring us great joy, right? It's a little better. So let's turn to Matthew chapter 13, page 819, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. As we look at this parable, the supreme treasure. Matthew chapter 13, just as you're turning, I'll give you a little bit of context. These Two parables are nestled among a string of parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. Starts off with the parable of the sower, which tells us how the kingdom of God is received in different ways. Jesus compares the kingdom to a seed that falls amongst different kinds of soil. It's only the good soil that it actually takes root. Okay, Jesus then goes on to tell the parable about the weeds, because it can be difficult to distinguish who is really in the kingdom or not. And so we won't know definitively, right, in this lifetime. We have to wait till Judgment Day. Then if you look down, he tells another parable, the parable of the net. It echoes a similar theme. Then he tells the parable of the mustard seed, highlighting the slow but unstoppable growth of the kingdom. As I said, he tells these parables to highlight all kinds of different things about the kingdom, his ministry that he brought into this world. Then, though, in verses 44 to 46, we have our parables for the day, which again stress the main point that Jesus is trying to get across here. That is the supreme worth of the kingdom of God. And by the way, Jesus will say the words kingdom of heaven here um, as Matthew was writing this out. More than likely, Matthew's audience was primarily Jewish, and some Jews would not like the word God written out, so Matthew uses this word heaven, kingdom of heaven, as a suitable substitute so as not to offend them unnecessarily. Okay? So now let's read the first parable, the parable of the treasure. In verse 44, Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So in Jesus' day, it was common for people to bury their valuables. You may say, why would they do that? Well, in this area and in this time, war was common in Palestine. And so if you heard about some attacking nation coming against you who might plunder all your goods, you would go out and bury your valuables. They didn't have trustworthy banks and safety deposit box to put these things so they would go and they would put their valuables in the ground and hopefully try to remember where they put it. So they would bury their valuables. But in this instance, apparently someone had forgotten or died. But anyway, they did not know that the treasure was there. And then this man stumbles across the treasure, realizes it. So then what does he do? He goes, he sells everything that he had. And then he goes and buys the field from the owner so that he can then 
have the treasure. This treasure was worth an incredible amount of money, right? And this was an incredible discovery for this man. And so he gets rid of everything he has, sells everything, just to have this treasure. How about another parable? Verses 45 to 46. Very similar, very brief, like the other one. Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So as in our day, people like pearls. Pearls were very valuable. They were used for necklaces, decorations, and so on. So in the parable, Jesus describes a merchant, probably a wholesaler. One writer describes the man like this. He says, He would travel from city to city, searching through markets, fishing ports, trade fairs, looking for high-grade pearls to buy for resale. People do the same thing nowadays with antiques. They search through old barns and attics and attend estate sales, hoping to find among all the second-hand furniture an overlooked treasure that they can pick up at a bargain. So this merchant finds this pearl that he has been seeking. And when he discovers it, likewise, he sells everything he has just to own it. The pearl cost a lot of money, but it was more than worth it to sell everything that he had to attain the pearl. So the point of these parables is very simple. The kingdom of God is the supreme treasure. It is the thing that we should long for and seek for more than anything else. But we should stop and ask ourselves, why is it so valuable? Why is the kingdom so preeminently important? Let me just give you two reasons. Probably could give you a lot more, but two reasons here this morning. The first is this. You know God personally in the kingdom of God. You know God personally. God is the supreme treasure. There's nothing more important or valuable in the entire universe than God and knowing Him. Nothing brings greater delight or joy than knowing God. Now, certainly human treasures bring a degree of satisfaction in this life. There's no denying that is that, right? We go and we have a wonderful meal and it tastes delicious. But then you're full, right? You don't really want anymore. Or you have cars and money and you have all of these things, but before long, after you've driven that car, you've lived in that house, you don't really notice it like you used to and the effect wears off and maybe you want another one to replace it. Family is great and there's moments when you think, it just can't get any better than this. And you would love to freeze that moment, right? Forever. But then someone starts crying. Something gets broken, and that moment is gone. But you know, if you stop and think about it, even if you could kind of encapsulate that moment, you know what? You would get bored of that moment and want something different after a while. Friends, we just can't be content with things in this world. Regardless of how wonderful they might be, deep down, there is a longing, isn't there, in the human heart for something more. 
Jesus said these words to the Samaritan woman who was trying to find her treasure in various relationships that she had. And Jesus says to her, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. He satisfies that unquenchable longing that we have. And He does it not only in this lifetime, which would be tremendous in and of itself, but He also promises that you will have this satisfied for the rest of eternity. That's pretty good news, isn't it? But somehow we have to get it in our mind that it's not going to be the things that we're chasing after and seeking to attain. We need the mindset of the Apostle Paul who was hoping to find his treasure in various things, but he realized that it was only in knowing Christ. He says these wonderful words in Philippians 3, 7-8, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count all things as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So the kingdom is valuable because we know God personally. Kingdom is also valuable because you know God's blessings. Friends, when you know God personally, it's like, boom, the door opens, and now you start knowing the blessings that He provides when you come to know Him. You experience genuine peace now that you are right with your Creator and your Redeemer. You have a peace with God. And you also have this assurance that that peace will never be taken away from you. You don't have to walk around on eggshells wondering, am I okay today? Does God love me? Is He going to get rid of me tomorrow? Is He going to pull the rug out from me? No, you have this solid assurance that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Another blessing is that you experience right relationships with others because now you have a God-given love for people. You see them not just as ends, you know, or means, excuse me, you see them as ends, that you're to love them as you love yourselves. And so all of a sudden you have, you know, a growing level of patience and forgiveness. When people wrong you, you're not ready to attack them. You don't want to sit around and grumble and complain about everything that people do to you. You want to have a heart that wants to love them and help them. Now, you know God's power, His promises, His character to sustain you through trials. Because all of us are promised trials, aren't we? Financial, health, whatever, relationships. You're going to go through trials. And now you have a good shepherd who will walk with you through the trials. He doesn't say the trials are gone, but he does say, I will be with you in the trials. And we all know that makes all of the difference in the world. And now we open up the Bible, and it's a, bit, it's a different book, isn't it? It's a treasure chest full of truth that helps us to know answers to life questions like, who are we? What are we doing here? What's wrong with us? And how can we be made right with God? And how, what will happen to us after we die? And so on. We need truth to live our lives, and the, God's kingdom gives us those truths. And God's Word also gives us wisdom and how to live life, how to have a marriage and a family and work and finances that bring honor to Him and bring joy and enrichment in our lives. Let 
Do you see why the kingdom of God is the supreme treasure? And, and, and this is just a glimpse. You know, my best efforts to try to communicate that, but we all know there's so much more, isn't there? In fact, the kingdom of God is so valuable that it's worth everything to obtain it. In the parables, when the, when the man finds the treasure or the other guy finds the pearl, he is willing to sell everything to possess them. And likewise, the kingdom is worth whatever it costs to attain it. Anything that we have that hinders it should be removed, shouldn't it? And yes, friends, before we come to know Christ, we have our own treasures, don't we? We have our own treasures that we put before God. The Bible calls them idols. They are God's substitutes. We try to put a substitute in place of God. These idols are what we derive our value from, what we spend our time and money on, what we can't live without. You think you don't have an idol? That thing was taken from you. That's an idol. In essence, it is what we worship. And the reason we have these idols is that our sinful hearts naturally reject God's rulership over our lives. We don't want to submit to Him. We want to do things our way, don't we? We don't want to bend our knee to acknowledge God as Lord over our lives. And so therefore, we have these idols. Because we still are made to worship something, aren't we? God has made us to worship. So we're going to have something that we worship. But instead of God, we put an idol in His place. You following me? And so we put things in its, God's place like education, money, family, pleasure, career, possessions, whatever it might be. And, and, and those things in and of themselves are not bad, but they become our treasure. And then they take God's place. But Jesus says in Matthew 6.21, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So friends, in order to receive the kingdom, you must be willing to remove them. Your hands must be empty. If you're clutching on to your treasures, they'll never be free to receive the kingdom. Does that make sense? I think the best illustration of this was Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler approaches Jesus and he says, I want, I want to have eternal life. What do I need to do? And Jesus you know, has a conversation with the man and the man thinks he's righteous. And Jesus, of course, knew he was not, but he points to something that was just a real quick you know, thing to point out in his life. And that was that he had a lot of possessions. And it wasn't wrong that he had the possessions, but it's just that he wanted to put the possessions in front of Christ. And so when Jesus points out those things, he clings on to the possessions rather than clinging to Christ. But in contrast, the men in the parables that we just covered illustrate the mindset of a true disciple. That whatever the cost, whether it's money or possessions or any other idol, we're to remove it, boom, to let it go so that we can gain the kingdom. How about you this morning? Have you received that kingdom? That treasure? Is the kingdom your supreme treasure? You can pretty much know just by your heart's response to those questions. If it's not a yes, 
And it probably is not. Friends, seize the day. Seize the day. If this speaker was a treasure chest full of gold, I imagine that after service, some folks might kind of meander around here, right? Or if you found a treasure chest of gold out in the woods, would you just kind of walk away from it? Of course you wouldn't. You would want that treasure. Friends, but here is a treasure that it far surpasses any kind of treasure chest full of gold or gems. It satisfies the soul. It answers our questions of life. It brings us a firm hope of eternal life. We'll never feel disappointed, never want to return that treasure. Would you like to receive it? This is what's so glorious, is that you can. He tells these parables so people would enter the kingdom, receive the kingdom, to receive the treasure. He doesn't want you to turn away from it. He wants you to receive the treasure. But there is a condition to it. You must realize that you need the treasure. That you're spiritually poor, as he says. Remember the Beatitudes? Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Friend, apart from Christ, we do stand guilty of our our sin. We need uh, freedom and forgiveness that God gives us. We need to turn from our sins, to drop down those idols that we have, and to turn to Christ fully, to believe that He is who He claimed to be, God in human flesh, who died on the cross, as we're going to be remembering and celebrating the Good Friday death of Jesus that purchased salvation and to be humbled by what He was willing to do for us on the cross and then rose from the dead three days later. Just to believe that, to receive that. But it has to be personal, right? It's not just a fact. It's not just, oh yeah, I think that happened. No, it is, I need that in my life. Paul says in Romans 10, 9-10, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. There's no hoops. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to do this or that. Drop your treasure and receive the supreme treasure. Realize that your hands are full of treasure that will get you nowhere, especially eternally speaking. And Receive the treasure that will satisfy your soul. Let nothing keep you from the kingdom. Let me also speak a moment here to Christians, those who have received the kingdom of God. You know in the parable, the first parable, the man sells everything with joy. I mean, would you have joy to go pack up everything you have, all your possessions? Would you have joy in that moment? Probably not, unless you knew that there was something greater that you were receiving, right? But this man had joy. Let me ask you, are you still overjoyed that you have the kingdom of God dwelling inside of you? Like you did when you first believed? Sadly, we can experience this, right? As life you know, when we first believe, you know, life is about Christ. Everything revolves around Jesus. We're just so excited and so enthusiastic about what God has done for us. We're just bursting with joy. But then the trials of life just kind of sap that joy, don't they? 
Or we replace just knowing Christ with serving Christ. We move from delight to duty. And then, lo and behold, we start finding ourselves going through the motions in the Christian life rather than just being filled with gratitude and joy. This is a very real danger, isn't it? Revelation 2, Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for their service. They were serving. But he adds a warning. He says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They'd lost their love. They'd lost their joy about what they had received. Is that sinking home with anybody here this morning? Well, if it is, I have good news for you. You can rekindle that joy right away. Because you see, what God has done, when you have trusted Christ, and I was thinking about this sermon illustration, even as I was sitting here this morning, so forgive me, it's a little bit rough, but I have a wood stove in my house. And this is all I think about for about four or five months out of the year. You know, it's wood stove, feeding that thing and all this stuff. But when I wake up in the morning, I always want to make sure that there's coals in that wood stove. You know why? There's coals there. All I have to do is go drop a few logs on. If there's not, then I've got to rekindle the whole thing, and it takes a long time and gets me frustrated. But if there are coals sitting there, you just have to simply drop on the logs. Boom. The fire is rekindled. If you know Christ, He's put coals in your heart. You just have to go back to them, right? You have to stop focusing on the drudgery and the duty and start worrying about the delight and to remember the great treasure that you have. To think about the difference that Christ has brought into your life. To think about life before Christ. And to think about Christ now that you know Him. To, to think about the peace and the joy and the blessings that He brings into your life. And to think about what he did as we do get ready for this week. Think about Good Friday. Think about the cross. Think about Jesus becoming a man, performing these miracles, living this sinless life, and then willing to go to the cross to die for you and I, to rise from the dead, to show that he was victorious over death, to ascend to heaven where he now rules and reigns and one day will return and will gather his people, establish a new creation where we'll reign and rule with him for the rest of eternity in resurrected bodies. Friends, let those thoughts kindle that flame. Drop some logs on the spirit of your heart and blow. And it's amazing how all of a sudden that joy starts rekindling, isn't it? You've got to put aside all the things that are quenching that fire and that joy and focus on what truly is the supreme treasure of your life. In closing, I just want to mention in the midst of all of the March Madness, the college basketball tournament going on here, I thought I would mention Pete Maravich, probably one of the greatest basketball players ever, arguably one of the greatest, the greatest college basketball player ever. Pistol Pete, as he was called, was a legend. And unfortunately, he died prematurely at the age of 40 at a heart, of a heart attack in 1988. When he played college basketball for 
Louisiana State University over 40 years ago, he set the all-time scoring record at 44 points a game. The next highest individual is 35 points a game. It's incredible. And this was before the three-point line. He probably would have been scoring over 50 points a game. He was incredible. You might say, well, what drove Maravich to his basketball greatness? Well, he wrote this about his life, and it's worth quoting, even though it's a little lengthy here. But he says, when I was seven years old, speaking of his dad, he said, my dad sat me down and said, Pete, I'm making $96 a week. There's no way I can put you through college. But if you'll let me teach you basketball, you'll get a scholarship. Maybe one day you'll play on the professional level as I did. Maybe you'll be on a team that wins the world championship and they'll give you a big ring. My eyes lit up. I wanted that ring more than anything in the world. So I began a strict commitment to basketball. I played six to ten hours a day during the summer. When my friends went to the lake, I went to... Excuse me, when my friends... When my friends went to the lake to swim, I stayed in a 104-degree gym and worked on drills. Basketball homework, as my dad called it. I went to bed with a basketball until I was 14. I took my basketball into empty movie theaters and dribbled on the carpeted aisle during movies. I dribbled to and from town five miles a day. When I got a bike, I learned to dribble while while riding it and later while hanging out the passenger side of a car. Can you imagine? (laughs) He was that good, but he was also that dedicated. After his incredible college career, he went pro. And he signed the largest sport contract ever. He wrote, I sat at a press conference with Howard Cosell and 42 microphones and said, I've arrived Now all I need is that ring. Then I will be happy for the rest of my days on earth. Well, despite all of his fame and money, he was miserable. He chased all kinds of things. Hinduism, reincarnation, transcendental meditation. He became a radical nutritionist. He took life-extending drugs that he hoped to make him live to be 150 years old. He retired from basketball in 1980 without his ring. He continued in misery for another two years. Then he writes, quote, The fateful night in November 1982 started just like any other. I watched TV, grumbled, on my, grumbled in my $300,000 house, and went to bed about midnight. But I could not sleep. All the sins of my youth kept parading through my mind. This had never happened to me before. I was up all night. I cried out to God, suddenly remembering the gist of the prayer offered at that conference 17 years earlier. It was an evangelism conference that he was talking about there. He said, I asked Jesus to come into my life. Nothing gave me the peace that Jesus gave me that night. Interestingly, Maravich went back to playing basketball, and he won his ring. But now he had a different perspective. He says, quote, When I finally got that ring with my name on it, do you know what Bible verse popped into my mind? For what, will, for what will a man be profited if he gain the whole world and loses his soul? Do you have a brass ring you're striving for today? Take it from me. Don't look anywhere but to Jesus, 
who gives a peace that lasts. Friends, Maravich realized that championship ring was not the true treasure. The supreme treasure was the kingdom of God. Let us pray.